certainly appreciate uh, your attention and most of all your prayers this morning. Uh, always need them and always appreciate them. I don't always state that, but as I've said in the past, I hope that you know that, and I hope I say it often enough to remind you of that. This morning, I'd like to begin with 2 Timothy 3.16. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, truly furnished into all good works. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Now, what are the Scriptures? Where do the Scriptures come from? Do we have them today? Have we always had them? since Paul wrote this? I think these are important questions. And the Bible, I think, answers most of these questions. It's been said, and I certainly agree, that the best dictionary of the Bible is the Bible itself. The best commentary of the Bible is the Bible itself. So the Bible gives us many answers concerning these things by simply searching the Scriptures. All Scripture, when it says all Scripture, is simply having reference to the Bible. It's having reference to the Word of God. The Word of God in contrast to everything else that's ever been written in the history of time, which are the words of men. This book is set apart. It is a special book. It is an unusual book. It's a unique book. It is an amazing book. It is a miraculous book. It indeed came into existence by the miraculous power of God. We find the Lord began to give the scriptures way back in the days of Moses. Prior to Moses, there was no scripture at all. God did speak to men. He spoke usually directly to them. But Moses is the first man that God moved upon. Now we look in the book of 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. And Peter says, for we have a more sure word of prophecy. Now when Peter wrote this, or just above it, he, has, he, he refers to an experience he had with the Lord on the mountain of transfiguration. When he and James and John met with the Lord and Moses and Elijah on that, on that wonderful occasion, the Lord was transfigured there between Moses and Elijah. And the Bible tells us in the book of Luke that they spake of his decease, which means his death. The most important subject, I think, in the word of God. Why didn't Jesus die? Why did he have to die? Who did he die for? What was accomplished in his death? They're all very important questions. And they're discussing it. The Lord and Moses and Elijah. When you think of the law, you think of Moses. When you think of Elijah, you think of the prophets. So we had the law and the prophets, which will come into play, hopefully, as we move along. He had the law on one hand and the prophets on the other. And Peter, James, and John were very blessed to be there. And Peter makes reference to this. But he says, we have a more sure word of prophecy, where where you do well that you take heed as unto a light in a dark place. If you're in a real dark place and you see a light, it gives you some hope and encouragement. Maybe you're lost in the, in the, in the middle of the woods or whatever uh, during the wee hours of the night. And you might see a farmhouse light come on or whatever, and you see it. It gives you some hope and encouragement getting out of there, right? He says, whom you would do well if you take heed as unto a light in a dark place. Now, we're living in a dark world, but we have some light right here. That's what he's saying. We have the light of God right here in a dark world in which we're living. That you do well if you take heed as unto a, dark, as unto a light in a, a dark place. 
For no prophecy of the scriptures is any private interpretation. The word private interpretation means explanation. I'm not to give my personal explanations for things. I'm to study the word of God to come up with the understanding of the word of God, you see. He says, for the prophecy of the scripture came in old time, not by the will of men. This is how it did not come. It did not come by the will of men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Now, in our opening text, 2 Timothy 3.16, he says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. The word inspiration here means God breathed. What he's telling you here is that God moved supernaturally upon men and had them write words down that were God's words, and they wrote those words word for word, and it became scripture. Now, holy men of old, he's talking about Old Testament prophets, holy men of old spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost, which means like a breeze moving a boat on a, on a body of water. The breeze or the wind is just blowing it along. That's what it means there, you see. Now, illustration of this, you go to the book of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 2, the Lord tells Jeremiah the prophet, he says, write these words in a book that I shall speak to thee. And Jeremiah wrote the words that God spake to him in a book. Now, in chapter 36, he tells Jeremiah again, he says, take a, a roll of a book. He says, And write the words I shall speak to thee concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And these words would eventually make their way to the king at that particular time. Now, Jeremiah had a colleague, he had an associate by the name of Barak. And so he enlisted him, and God spoke to Jeremiah, and Jeremiah spoke the words to him, and he wrote down the words. Now, he wrote them down word for word, just like God gave him. So here's a biblical explanation of what I'm saying. I've illustrated this way from a natural perspective. Me like uh, back in the day when secretaries actually uh, uh, took dictation and shorthand, and uh, the you know her boss would come in and says, "I want to dictate a letter," and he would he would speak the words he wanted her to pin down to sin. And she was to write down exactly the words he spake, right? She didn't have the liberty to add words or own words or take words away, right? She had the responsibility as a good employee to write the exact words that he gave her, and she dictated them down, and then she sent the letter. Now, she dictated, she typed it, whatever, but it was his words, right? So I hope you can get the picture right here. Also, we go back to Jeremiah chapter 36, and you'll find when they brought the roll... Uh, of the book to the king, he didn't like what he read. He read four or five pages of it. He took a pen knife and cut them out and cast them into the fire. Now, if you think you can destroy the Word of God, you cannot. We'll see that in a minute, too. You cannot destroy the Word of God. I've actually heard people, uh, I think this must be true, I've heard on more than one occasion where somebody had a, uh, you know, interaction with somebody and they got to talking about predestination, things like that, and the person said, well, that's not in my Bible. So, said, would you have a King James Bible? Yes, I have one. Well, it's in there. No, it ain't. I took my scissors and I cut it out. You think that done away with God's uh, work of predestination because you cut the pages concerning it out of the Bible? <laughs> Don't think so. You know what God did? He once again told Jeremiah, you speak the words that I speak unto you and write them in, in the book and you sent it back to the king, and this time he sent it back to the king, and all of the words replaced, but more words were given to him. 
Now, there's three warnings in the Word of God, major warnings in the Word of God concerning the Word of God. You look at the fourth chapter of the book of Deuteronomy, you're going to find where God, through Moses to the Israelites, warned them not to add to nor take away from his word, not to diminish from it. You come pretty much to the middle of the Bible, to Proverbs chapter 30, verses 5 and 6, it says, Every word of the Lord is pure. He says, Add not to them nor take away from them, lest you be found a liar. Then we come to the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, the very last word spoken. We find the apostle John, and he's pinning these words down by divine inspiration. But the Lord said, let him know that he that added to the words of the prophets of this book, so shall the plagues that's in this book be added unto him. And he says, let him not take away the words of the prophets of this book. In so doing, he says, I will take his part out of the book of life. Now, he's not talking about eternity. He's not talking about eternal things here, but he's talking about things right here in time. I don't know how you have three more stern warnings than this, strong warnings from God himself concerning his word, how you're to handle his word. So God began to call men to pin down his word. And this took place over about 1,600 years. Over 40-some men that God used as human writers began pinning God's word down. And they were men found on three different continents, Europe, Asia, and Africa. It was written in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. So over a period of time, about 1,600 years, we finally come to a complete Bible, a collection of a complete Bible, 66 books, 39 in the old and 27 over here in the new. There's about 400 years time between the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, and the first book of the New Testament, Matthew. Now, when you read and study the Bible, which I've been trying to do for about 50 years, I've been reading and studying the Word of God seriously for right at 50 years. I've never found one contradiction. This is such an amazing Bible. And, and, and the Bible wasn't written by just one man. It was written by over 40 men. But it was just like it was written by one man because God himself is the author of it. God's the author of this book. It's God's mind revealed to us and pinned down in this book called the Bible. And the word Bible is not in the Bible. <laughs> but it comes from the Greek word, or Latin word, excuse me, biblios, which means a collection of books. We're talking about a collection of divinely inspired books. It also, I like the acronym uh, that the word Bible is, is basic instruction before leaving earth. <laughs> I like that. This is basic instruction before leaving earth. You won't need the Bible in heaven, I can assure you. You will not need it there. You won't even need me to preach to you there. So you know, all the preaching you're going to get from me, you better cut, show up and get it here because you're not going to get it there. <laughs> Be no preaching in heaven. Be no church like this in heaven. It'd be one great family of God in heaven praising God. It'd be like one gigantic annual meeting that never ends. <laughs> I like that too, don't you? So this is how the Bible, first of all, was written. Now, how was the Old Testament preserved? It was preserved when Jesus Christ came in this world. It'd been about 400 years since the last book of Malachi was written. They had the entirety of the scripture. Well, you find that the Men who copied the manuscripts, copied the scriptures of the Old Testament, were scribes of the tribe of Levi. And there's never been a people any more meticulous, any more careful, any more serious about their awesome responsibility to the Word of God than the Jewish people were. They would take, and as they wrote it, they would count every letter. 
They would count every word. They would count every phrase. They would count every pronunciation. If they found something amiss, as they had copied it, they destroyed it all, and they started over from scratch. They just started over. And after they would write down one word, they would have water by them, and they would wash their hands in the water, showing the importance and the seriousness they took in copying the Word of God. Now let's go to Psalms 12, 6, just for a moment, 7. And David says, For every word of the God is pure. I gave you already once. This is the second time we read where the Bible tells us the words of God are pure. For every word of God is pure, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. The word seven is the number of completion and perfection. He said, just like silver is purified seven times in the furnace of earth, you get all the dross of it, and it, then it, now it's in its purest form, so the word of God is pure. He says, thou shalt preserve them, O Lord, thou shalt keep them from this generation forever. Now, the Lord said, I will preserve them. We've established the inspiration of Scripture. Now, here we find this verse establishing the preservation of Scripture. If the Scriptures are divinely inspired and the Scriptures are divinely preserved, we can also take the stand that the Scriptures are without error. Now, some people start off, they'll believe in the inspiration of Scripture, but they just can't believe the Bible uh, has not had error crept into it down through the centuries of time, which tells me they limit the power of God. You don't think God has the power to do that? There's three things that God has promised to preserve. He's promised to preserve you as His children. We have eternal security in the Lord Jesus Christ. Final preservation of saints is taught clearly in God's Word. We have the promise of the preservation of the church. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, Upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In the last verse of Ephesians 3, 321, he says, Now unto him be glory in the church, world without end, from this generation forever. Now what do you think he's saying there? If he's not saying that he'll keep his church here on this earth till he comes again, I don't know what that verse is saying. Unto him be glory in the church. That's the main responsibility, the main function of the church is bring glory to God. And him be glory where? In the church. That means you can't give God the glory that he desires for you to give him outside the church. He must be in the assembly of the saints. That's why Paul says in Romans 12, 1, I beseech you therefore by the mercy of God that present your body a living sacrifice, holy acceptance of God, which is a reasonable service. Church attendance is mandatory. Church attendance is required of God. Church attendance is a commandment of God. It's not a suggestion. It's not just something he put here and said, you know, it won't hurt you every once in a while to go to church. I think probably help you. you. You read language like that in the Word of God? No, you don't. You go to Hebrews chapter 10, it says, forsake not this assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. That encourages me a little bit. I, I see that things hadn't changed over 20, 000, uh, I mean, uh, 2,000 years. Uh, people were forsaking the assembling themselves together back then just like they do now, apparently. But here's the exhortation that that's not to happen. God's promised to preserve His church, and God has promised to preserve His Word. Then we listen to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 5, 18. On the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking to His disciples. And He says here, For until, until heaven and earth pass, there's coming a day when the heaven and earth will pass. Until heaven and earth pass, not one jot nor one tittle of the law and the prophets shall pass. Notice this. What is a jot and a tittle? You've heard that all your life, haven't you? Jot and a tittle? Well, a jot is the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. 
Tittle is the smallest pronunciation in the Hebrew alphabet. He said, until heaven and earth pass, not one jot, nor one tittle of the law and the prophets shall pass. So the law and the prophets is going to be here until heaven and earth pass. And that's going to take place at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ when the Lord comes again. So we have the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ himself that his words will not pass away. He says, my words shall not pass away. Until heaven and earth pass, not one jot and one to the law and the prophet shall pass. My word shall not pass away. Now, God did not promise to preserve the original manuscripts. They don't exist. He promised to preserve his word. So either we have it today or we don't. Now, the Apostle John penned down the last word of the Bible in the book of Revelation. He's the last of the apostles to die. He died on the Isle of Patmos. The apostle John died a natural death. The other 11 of 12 apostles died martyrs' deaths. The Bible is now complete. And we find the apostles, who are the first ones in the church, are witnesses now, the Lord Jesus Christ, and proclaiming his word. And we have the written word of God now complete. Now, when Paul wrote this to Timothy about all scriptures giving inspiration of God, the Bible wasn't totally complete then, but most of it was. This is one of the last letters that he wrote. We still have John to come along and write his letters, especially the book of Revelation, you see. But now the Bible is complete. we got 66 books, 39 of the old and 27 of the new over here. Now, the Lord promised to preserve his inspired word. And Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, to study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. He says, the scriptures is the word of truth. He didn't say you're to separate truth from error. There are some people who propose the fact that the Bible, some of it's divinely inspired and some of it is not. That's about as preposterous and ridiculous as you can come up with. It's either all divinely inspired or it's not. And I believe that it is. In Acts 24, 14, the apostle Paul said, I believe all things written in the law and the prophets, that's all 39 books, he said, all things written, that means every single word written in the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi, he said, I believe all this written in the law and the prophets. Paul certainly thought it was divinely inspired. He certainly thought it had been divinely preserved up to that particular time, correct? And so, do we have the preserved word of God today? I believe we do. Now, 200 years after the days of the apostles, 200 A.D., we find a man by the name of Origen wrote a Bible. He did not believe in the eternal sonship of the Lord Jesus Christ. He believed that Christ was a created being. So we have the first corruption comes in right to play right here. And he wrote it on animal skins, on, on the skins of antelopes. The scriptures in the beginning was written on papyrus and uh, parchments, which were the skins of animals and, uh, and codex tablets. And we find where he writes it on the, these skins here, 50 of them, and they're circulating in the Roman Empire. Now, in 325, Constantine is the leader of the Roman Empire. And Constantine is desired a Bible. Now, he could have had one because there was a people in that day known as the Novatians. The Novatians were following the footsteps of the apostles. I believe the Novatians believe exactly, believed exactly what we believe today, and I believe today we believe exactly what the Novatians believed. And they had a Bible based on the Texas Receptus manuscripts, the received text. 
That day you had the text receptors, the Byzantine text, the received text, etc. Uh, the majority text, which all was accepted as being the manuscripts that uh, was originally given. But instead, he enlisted a man by the name of Eusebius. Now, I don't expect you to remember some of these names or all these names or these dates, but I want you to get a picture in your head this morning of how some of these things came about. Eusebius was a follower of Origen. And so we're going to find he follows right in the footsteps uh, using these corrupt manuscripts. All right, then in 382, we find where it is published now. His works are published and they're spread throughout the empire. In 1546, in the Council of Trent, it is fir- was firmly established officially that this, these manuscripts would make up the Bible used by the Roman Catholics. All based on what started out as origin over here, who did not believe that uh, Jesus was the eternal Son of God, which he is, but he believed that he was a created being, which he's not. So time goes on. As we move on up, uh, we'll come to uh, 1481. In 1481, there's some manuscripts discovered in Rome, by the way, in a waste paper, paper basket. All right, they, uh, they're found there. And then in, eight, uh, in 1844, you find some more manuscripts found at the base of Mount Sinai, known as the Sciatic Manuscripts. Now, these manuscripts here are right in the same line of where the manuscripts became corrupted over here with origin. Now, what you got here, you got two different streams. You got a stream that's still pure and uncorruptible, and you got a stream that's corruptible over here. And I'm giving you the corrupt side at the present time. Okay? So we come to 1881. In 1881, there's two men in the country of England named Westcott and Hort. These two men and a committee of people began coming up with another translation. Now, from 1611 until 1881, they had the King James translation, King James Bible. It has served the Lord's people well and still does today. But we come to 1881, and for 10 years they meet in secrecy. And in 1891, they come out with the English revised version of the Bible, all based on all these manuscripts I've just been telling you of here that come from a corrupt stream. You cannot get something pure from that which is corrupt. Even the Bible teaches that about, humani- uh, about depravity among humanity. We find where the prophet said, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? No, not one. Job stated that. You can't bring something clean out of something that's unclean. So we find the English English version, uh, standard version in 1891. Ten years later, 1901, you got the American standard version. Now over here in America. All based on this work of Westcott and Hort. That lasts about 1952. And this... uh, American Standard Version has to be revised. So they revise it in 1952. It lasts for 19 years to 1971. Guess what? It's got to be revised again. As time goes on, the revisions get quicker and quicker and quicker and quicker. In 1966, I was 18 years old and I remember it. Something come out called Good News for Modern Man. And I've always thought it was bad news for any man. 
Good news for modern man. Reader's Digest comes out not too long after that, and they come out with an abbreviated Bible because they said they went in and took out all the unimportant and insignificant things that was in there to make it a lot smaller to encourage people to read it. Don't you think that is an insult in the face of God? That they're saying that God would put insignificant things, unimportant things in his word that could be just taken out and made a smaller book? 1971, we have something else that comes out. The Living Bible. Well, first of all, it wasn't a Bible. It was a paraphrase. It was a paraphrase. And it wasn't living. And the man who put that together, his last name was Taylor. And some years after that, he lost his voice. And he, by his own admission, felt like he lost his voice because he tampered with the Word of God. Then, 1978, comes out the NIV, New International Version. And it became popular. You know, things come out popular, and then you lose its popularity, so they got to come out with something else. Uh, so we had the NIV here for a while. And then we've had now, the thing that's gotten the most popular is the ESV, English Standard Version. And that's the one I've told you before, where they take out the word... Um, you know, concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, the word begotten. When you take the word begotten now, you take out a very important word because that tells you how the Lord Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God, different than how we're the sons of God. We're the sons of God based upon God's choice and upon unconditional election. The Lord Jesus Christ has always been the Son of God. It separates Him from us. makes a strong distinction. Now, when the NIV came out, you know what I told you a while ago? I gave you those warnings about adding to and taking away from the Word of God. Over 65,000 words have been changed in the NIV. 65,000. And you, you, now you've got the new King James Bible came out too, and that's quite deceiving because it is not the King James. And they changed about 2,500 words. And the words like heaven, the words like hell, the words like blood, you can still find them, but not near as frequently. The idea is, see, publishing companies are in the business of selling books. They are not committed to the inspiration and the inerrancy and the preservation of the Word of God. They're not. They're committed to the profit margin. That's what they're interested in. And so they sell these things on the idea they're making things more understandable and increase readership. But according to my observation, according to everything I read, there's never been a time when people read less of anything called the Bible than they do in this present day in which we're living. So that certainly doesn't hold up. And when it comes to making things more understandable, let me tell you one unique thing about God's Word. This Word was not written for, you, for a lazy man to read and get great understanding of. In the book of 2 Timothy 1, 7, Paul tells Timothy, consider what I say, and the Lord give thee understanding. Now here's an apostle writing to his son in the ministry. He says, now you consider what I say, Timothy, but the Lord give you understanding. Don't you think Paul would have given Timothy understanding if he could have? And he's the apostle, of course he would have. Of course he would have. In the 24th chapter of the book of Luke, you're going to find where the Lord Jesus Christ has met with his uh, disciples, uh, revealing unto them that he's a resurrected Christ, 
And we were told where he says, then he opened up their understanding. They might understand the scriptures. Here's the scriptures, but they have to be, they need to be understood. And the Lord opened their understanding so they could. So the Lord had it written, not like a Sunday newspaper. That's, that's what the, you know, the, uh, these new versions, they're all working toward the fact that you finally come out with a book called the Bible where you can just open up and read it like the Sunday newspaper. The Bible never was designed to be read and understood that way. Now let's go back to 1611 just a minute. King James Bible, by comparison. You're going to find where 54 men were selected in that day, actually 1604. 54 men were selected in 1604 to do a work that was commissioned and authorized and supported by King James. They were going to do a work of translating the Bible into the English language. By the time this work started, some of them had died and some of them fell out, so we wind up with 47. You're going to find these 47 men are divided up into six groups. Two groups are at Cambridge, two at Westminster, and two at Oxford. There's your six groups. And a certain portion of Scripture is assigned to each one of them for them to translate. And when one did it, he passed it on to his colleagues in that group, and they reviewed it for accuracy. When it was all done, then the entire group reviewed it, and it was passed to the other group. Then that was passed to the other people, and to the other people, this was done 14 times. And here's the two things I want you to remember about these men. They're called the learned men. That's the title they have, the learned men. These were 54 racially selected, 47 of the greatest scholars in England at that time. But every single one of them believed in the inspiration, the inerrancy, and the preservation of the scriptures. When they translated the word of God, they treated it as the word of God. They saw the seriousness of it. Westcott and Hort themselves believed in Mary worship. And there were people in that committee that did not believe in the inspiration, preservation, and inerrancy of the scriptures. When you compare the work of these two here, I, I think it's a no-brainer which one you would accept. Right? Without question, the Lord's church and the Lord's people have received and have felt like that the work of the King James translators was a providential work of God. So that's what we have today. When you walk into a primitive Baptist church, you will know before you ever get there the preacher in that stands using the King James Bible. And the people out there in the pew have King James Bibles. Now you might find an exception here or there somewhere, but in general that's the case. Most anywhere else, you may have four or five different uh, translations uh, by people in the congregation and the preacher in the stand. And they do not read the same. 1 John 5, 7 by origin, was taken out, out of the manuscripts way back there in the very beginning, 200 A.D. 1 John 5, 7, For the three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. The book of Mark, chapter 16, the last verses of that first great commission, in many of the versions, are taken out. A good portion of John, chapter 7, the conversation of the Lord Jesus Christ with the uh, Samaritan woman, taken out. None of these versions, you will not find the word ransom. You'll not find the word propitiation. You'll not find these precious words that's in the word of God that shows the redeeming work of our Lord and Savior. They're taken out. 
I've said before, you'll find they have a book called the Bible and won't even have the word blood in it. So all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, how did the Lord Jesus Christ treat Scripture? Well, the Lord refers to the Old Testament time and time and time again. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, the Lord said, For as Jonah was in the bed of the whale uh, three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. What did Jesus just do there? He just gave credibility to the book of Jonah. And I don't, I don't know how many times people have told me this. The subject will come up in conversation, and I will say, well, God prepared a whale to swallow Jonah, and they'll say, well, you know, the Bible don't say that. It says he prepared a great fish. That just tells me you never read Matthew 12, 40. He may tell me you read the book of Jonah, but it tells me you ain't read Matthew 12, 40, because the Lord said in Matthew 12, 40, that great fish that God prepared in the book of Jonah was a whale. And we come to Luke chapter 18. And the Lord Jesus Christ said, as in the days, what, of Noah. Or in the, uh, yeah, yeah, Noah. He says, they ate, they drank, they were given in marriage until the day that, the flood, that Noah built the ark and the flood came and they all were destroyed. So shall it be in the days of the Son of Man. What did the Lord just do? The Lord just told you there was a real flood. There was a real man named Noah and Noah and his family were saved from the flood and everybody else drowned. That's just exactly what he told you. People want to make out like the flood is just a, a fairy tale. The flood is just something that uh, makes for a good story to tell your children. Then he says, in the days of light, he says, they were eating and they were drinking. I ain't seen much change since that day. They were eating and they were drinking. <laughs> and they were building and they were planting and one thing and another until the day that the Lord visited Sodom and Gomorrah with fire, hell, and brimstone from heaven and was totally destroyed. Even so shall it be in the days of the Son of God. What did the Lord just do? He told you there's a real man named Lot. There's a real man named Lot's wife. I guess she was Ms. Lot. And he said, remember Lot's wife? She turned to a pillar of salt. All that verifies the account given to us in the book of Genesis. One of the greatest, one of the greatest uh, uh, things about the Bible, not only is there no contradiction in it, but when you see all the fulfilled prophecies, they're in the Bible. All the fulfilled prophecies, not only concerning the Lord and Jesus Christ, but you, you go to Genesis chapter 15, beginning verse 13, and you find where the Lord said concerning the nation of Israel that they shall be strangers in a land that is not there, theirs, and they shall be in bondage for 430 years, and then I will come and deliver them, and they shall come out with great substance. That came to pass exactly like God said. It was about 200 some years after that when they went in there and then they went there 400 years, 430 years, just like the Lord said. Just like he said. And then we find a case of a man by the name of Josiah. This is one of the most remarkable things of the Bible that you'll read concerning this. Concerning Josiah, you go to uh, 1 Kings chapter 13, verse 2, and the prophet here says, There's coming a day when there shall be a man born in the house of David, a man whose name shall be Josiah. Now, if he had just said there'd be a man born in the house of David, there were a lot of people born in the house of David, but not by the name of Josiah. There should be a man born in the house of David by the name of Josiah, and then he gives details of what Josiah is going to accomplish when he comes to this world, and Josiah is not born for over 350 years after that statement's made. And you go to 2 Kings chapter 23, and you can read all about it. 
You read where that man was born in the house of David. His name is called Josiah. And you'll see everything that they said Josiah would do 350 years later. You find him doing it exactly, crossing every T and dotting every I in 2 Kings chapter 23. And what about all the messianic uh, um, prophecies of the Lord Jesus Christ? It's been estimated that there's about 300 what they call minor prophecies of Christ in the Old Testament that were fulfilled. And there's over 60 major prophecies of the Lord Jesus Christ that were all fulfilled. You will not find one prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ, minor or major, that wasn't completely fulfilled in the lifetime of the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll find an account of it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Not one. You know what the Lord said in John 10, 34? He says the scriptures cannot be broken. What does he mean by that? It means everything God pinned down in the scriptures is correct, is true, and cannot be contradicted and will always come to pass. The scriptures cannot be broken. Now, there was a study done where they took like eight of the major prophets of the Lord Jesus Christ out of 60, such as his virgin birth and his predecessor being John the Baptist. And how he come right in Jerusalem put an ass to coat the fold of an ass. How did his familiar friend Judas Iscariot would betray him? Had been trained for 30 pieces of silver. Isaiah chapter 53, how he'd make his grave with the wicked and the rich in his death, etc., etc., right? Read Psalms 22. We're just going to take about eight of the major prophecies of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then they did a, a probability. You know, if you, if you uh, play the lottery, there's a probability, by the way, that you're going to lose your money. I have never lost a single dollar in the lottery because I've never played it. When they offer about $100 million, it's tempting to go buy a ticket, isn't it? Why would I lose my dollar? <laughs> the probability of those prophecies being fulfilled is one in 10 slash 7, which is a quadrillion. It said you could take a quadrillion silver dollars and place them on the state of Texas. And one quadrillion would make, you could cover the state of Texas knee deep. And then mark one of those silver dollars in a way and you hide it somewhere in all those quadrillion silver dollars and blindfold a man and tell him he can go anywhere he wants to to try to find that silver dollar. And him find that silver dollar is about like the probability of just those eight prophets of the Lord Jesus Christ coming to pass, written hundreds and hundreds of years before it took place. You don't think this is a miraculous book? You don't think this is an amazing book right here that I hold in my hand? You don't think this is the word of God that I'm talking to you about right here? That God has given to us by divine inspiration and also by divine preservation? Every one of those prophets has been fulfilled to a jot and to a tittle. And it's based on that that I got hope that the word of God indeed is true because God is true and it cannot lie and it cannot change that one day I'll leave this world and be out of this mess I'm in right now and be taken to a place called heaven, a place called glory, and I believe that with all my heart. Why do you believe it, Brother Ronald? Because the word of God says it. And I believe it by faith. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And is profitable. 
every important subject, every significant subject, every major subject you'll ever face in life right here, you'll find an answer to it right here in the Word of God. You'll find an answer to every question and a solution to every problem. So why is this book so read so little? It, it, it breaks my heart. Uh, and I see the Lord's people having something of such great value in their possession here. That's why in the book of Proverbs, over and over again, Solomon speaks about how that if you, you know, the word of God is more precious than silver and gold and precious stones. The Lord said, ye shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. All scriptures given by inspiration of God and it's profitable. Let that sink down in your mind. It's all profitable. Profitable what, Brother Lawrence? Profitable every subject that's important. It's, impro- it's profitable to tell you who you are. It's, it's proper to tell you where you came from. Uh, I'm glad I don't have to get swept away by evolution. You go to uh, these national parks and you go to all kind of places out here and you read about uh, how something co- took millions of years to come to pass. I let that go in one ear and right out the other. I know the earth is about 6,000 years old because the Bible tells me so. I know I came from Adam multiplied. I came from the very dust of this earth right here. That's okay. I came from dust. I'm going back to dust. But if God made man out of the dust to begin with, he'll get my body out of the dust and bring it home to glory one day. Word of God. It's given the inspiration of God. And it's profitable. It's profitable for me to know that God loved me as a person, as an individual, before time ever began, before the foundation of the world, and chose me in his son, the Lord and Jesus Christ. I don't know why. I'm just happy that he did. I think I got enough evidence in my life to believe that I'm one of the Lord's children. I'm his son. I belong to him. And thank God he loved me good enough that he sent his son into this world and died for me 2,000 years ago. Uh, he came and paid the ransom price I couldn't pay. He came became the propitiation for my sins. He justified me. He redeemed me. He saved me from my sins. As I've said from time to time, that's all the motivation I need to come to the house of God and try to be faithful and fill my seat in God's house. Just the very thought, he saved me from a burning hell. He saved me from my sins. That's profitable for me to know that and understand that. It's profitable for me to know that he set up his church here in this world in a very simple manner and simple way where we meet together and sing the praise of God a cappella collectively as a family here in his house. And he will offer prayer to God. And then God blesses a man, open up the Bible, and, and after he's rightly divided the word of truth and come up with an edifying message for the family of God, it can reach my heart and reach my soul and give strength into, my, in, into me. And just like the Lord said, and he went on top of the mountain of temptation when Satan tempted him three times. What did the Lord say? He said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeded where? Out of the mouth of God. These words proceeded out of the mouth of God. I should live by every one of them. And then when he took him on top of the pinnacle of the temple and told him to cast himself down, thou be the son of God, he said, it is written. He quotes from Deuteronomy. What's the Lord doing here? He's giving uh, credibility to the inspiration of Scripture that Moses wrote in the book of Deuteronomy. And then when he showed him all the kingdoms of the world, he said, if you'll bow down and worship me, he said, I'll give you all these kingdoms here. And the Lord replied for the third time, it is written. Three times he said, it is written, it is written, it is written. Well, who wrote it? Moses did, as God gave him the words to write. Three times he quotes from that book, showing us how to defend ourselves from Satan's attacks. We got a book we can rely on. We got a book we can trust in. We got a book we can hold on to. God has given it to us down through the ages. 
God in his great marvelous power and providence. You know what the Lord said to some Sadducees one time? They came to him in a resurrection question. And they want to know whose husband this wife was going to have in the resurrection. It says her husband died but no children. So according to law, she married his brother. No children. He died. Married his brother. This happened to her. She had seven husbands. Now in the morning of the resurrection, whose husband is she going to have? And they didn't even believe in the resurrection. The Lord said, you do err, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. <laughs> it's going to take the power of God to resurrect bodies, right? They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the power of God. They didn't believe in God's words. They said, you, you do err, not knowing the scriptures, not understanding the scriptures. For if you had, you wouldn't have asked me this question. He then tells them about the burning bush experience, how God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. He says, well, these are words that God spoke to you. God spoke them to you. Moses wrote them down, but God spoke them to him. All scripture, old and new, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. That word doctrine means teaching. Any biblical subject is doctrine. That's in the broad sense of the word. But I do believe that the word is used a lot of times concerning the very fundamental things that we believe that the Bible teaches. And there are fundamentals. It's profitable for doctrine. That's why Paul told Titus and Timothy, speak those things which become what? Sound doctrine. The word sound means healthy. When you're speaking about the doctrine of God, you're speaking things that's healthy for God's children. Uh, I want God's children, I want you to be healthy. <laughs> I want you to be spiritually healthy here this morning. So I'm going to do my best to speak sound doctrine. I hope the day never comes that you say, oh, I don't know if that Brother Ronald was right about that or not, uh, whatever. I'm going to speak sound doctrine to you. I want you to be healthy. I want you to have a balanced diet. I want you to be strong in the Lord. And that requires for you to live not by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. That means to teach you what is right. And for reproof, that's to teach you what is not right. And for correction, is to teach you how to get right. And for instruction in righteousness, teach you how to stay right. <laughs> I've said this many different times. You want something to come out right? Best thing to do, if you want something to come out right, is to do it right. If you don't do it right, how do you expect it to come out right? Right? <laughs> Am I right? If you're going to do something right, you've got to be instructed right. You've got to be taught right. If you want it to come out right. So all, all scriptures give them inspiration to God, and it's profitable for doctrine to teach you what is right. Teach you wrong from right, and good from evil, and right from error, whatever. And if you don't read and study this book, brother, you're going to be swept away by every wind of doctrine. And that's what's happening out here in the religious world. While so many, they've changed so many things and added so many things and one thing or another, they're ignoring the Word of God, rejecting the Word of God, not taking the Word of God to guide them and direct them, you see. So it's to teach you what is right. It's profitable doctrine. And for reproof, to teach you what's not right. The Bible will tell you what's not right. And for correction, do you feel like you need to be corrected every once in a while? <laughs> it won't teach you how to get right. And then it's profitable for 
righteous sake to teach you how to stay right. You know, I'm in, uh, I, I weigh every morning. I've told you that before. I highly recommend it. It'll help keep you in check. <laughs> you know why I weigh every morning? Because I want to keep on top of things. And if I gain a couple of pounds, it's a lot easier to lose them two than if I just neglect it and gain 10 or 12. Then it gets a little harder. And then I get to that position where people say, well, I'm going to start my diet on Monday. And then the next week, well, I'm going to start it on Monday. Somehow or another, Monday never shows up. But when I step on the scales, it tells me the truth. It tells me if I need to make some adjustments. And when I step on the scales of God's word, it tells me the truth. It tells me if I need to make some adjustments in my life. And if I make those adjustments, it tells me to make. It's going to be for my welfare and my betterment. It's going to cause me to have a happier life, a more peaceful life, a more God-glorifying life. I just want to encourage you. I, the first thing I do every morning when I get up is I fix a cup of coffee and I sit down and open up my Bible and I read the daily Bible reading that you have access to right outside there. And I read that. That's how I start my day. If I do it then, I know I got it under my belt. It puts me in touch with God. I never have found it unprofitable to be in touch with God. I've always found that to be profitable. I've always found it to be good if I can be in touch with God. Uh, somebody says, well, stay in touch. <laughs> the God is telling you to stay in touch, brother. <laughs> He's telling you to stay in touch right here. So I, I started off every day like that. Now I do a lot of Bible reading and searching and things besides that throughout the week. But that's how I start my day. And you know, I think what got me really on this maybe was when I was reading this past week in Jeremiah chapter 36, I gave you early this morning, how God told Jeremiah to write these words in the roll of a book. And then I saw that king trying to destroy God's word. And then God had it rewritten again, just like he had before. I don't know, I just couldn't get it out of my mind. I want you to know, my friends, that there is a, an incorrupt stream of manuscripts here in this world here uh, that this good book right here was uh, translated from, and you have a reliable book, a trustworthy book, one that you can depend upon, and, and God bless it to be able to be here for us until time shall be no more. And I believe it will be, because God promised, my word shall not pass away. 